0: Thank yeah. you. Today, modern time, if instead of calling it the Gamesters of Triscalon, if they would call it the gamers of Triscalon, that's a possibility. Or maybe the uh, the bookies of Triscalon. <laughs> that might be more apt. The gamblers of Triscalon. Who knows? Well, the good thing is that the odds here are one to one that we are the Brothers who trek about. As always, my name's Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming to us from Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. Excellent. Well, I'm just going to get this out of the way right at the top of the episode, is that I did not love this episode at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I shouldn't say at all, but I did not love this episode. And we'll get into the very particular reasons once we hit the recap, but generally, I felt that not only was it slow but that I also feel like we've done a lot of this before.
1: We've been here before.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, we've got Bones and Bones and Scotty. Well, Scotty wasn't part of it last time, but Bones undermining, you know, Spock's authority, you know, questioning him all the time. We got the, the gladiators of, uh, you know, bread and circuses. So it just feels like, I mean, there's more, but it just feels like we've, we've done so much of this before. It's like they took all these, like, little parts... And they put them into, uh, put them into this one story,
1: right? So you know, it's one thing to revisit old territory, but put such an interesting new spin on it that it feels new, mm-hmm. right? And in a lot of ways, what we're getting here is is just a, a mishmash or a collage of yeah, I've been here, done this, seen this, without yep. there really being anything. The only you, you get some new pieces that are so small that you're like, well that was interesting, but mm-hmm. like it lasts a moment. So you know Mr. Scott is involved in resisting Spock's plan this time, right That's new yeah because he didn't in Galileo 7 he was pretty much like I got to work on this stuff you guys do it he you was quiet do. yeah he was yeah he was not involved. And of course there's been a lot of like, development for his character now right so he's not like you know uh, lieutenant kyle (laughs) who you would not expect to be engaged in a debate about what they should do right and you get that that really interesting ending right where kirk beams off you don't go back to the ship where there's some banter nobody's like uh uh Uh, Mr. Scott and and Dr. McCoy didn't think that my plan to come here was going to bear any fruit. Mm -hmm. And you get some, you know, joke, like, uh, didn't trust the old Vulcan logic, eh? (laughs) You didn't get the normal (laughs) ending. (laughs) Right. Instead, you got this thing where she watches them beam away, and then she gives a little poignant speech. I thought that was really good. But Mm -hmm. it was also like the last 10 seconds of the episode.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I got a story behind that, that uh, final speech, but we'll get there. With all that out of the way, though, with, with my feelings generally towards this episode, here's how EW ranked this episode. Number 14 on the all-time list. They said, It's American gladiators in outer space. Three brain creatures living in a big dairy case who force Kirk to battle assorted opponents with an enormous can opener. What's not to love? You're like, well, thanks, EW. All right. You definitely see this quite differently than I do.
1: There is a lot of lore with this episode, right? In the sense that fans remember this episode and you get some interesting little pieces that you could hang your hat on and refer to, right? So Mm -hmm. there's this whole business about Quatlu's, And I'll wager so many Quatlu's. And so, kind of in the geek community, if you start Googling, you know, I'll wager quatloos, you'll find <laughs> people who, you know, say that. Right. And it's, it's it comes from this episode, and you know, but to me, it's one of these little hooks, one of these little pieces, in an otherwise kind of, we've been here before, episode, without yeah. necessarily making it feel like the challenge is different, or it's new, or it's interesting, or it's fresh. Because... The people involved are creative people. It's not right. like every, you know, like everything about this episode is is uh, a rehash. Some of the dialogue is good. Some of the situations are interesting. Some of the mm-hmm. new problems are are you know, have an interesting element, but they don't rise to the level of making the episode compelling.
0: Yes, I totally agree with that. Uh, we'll get into it later, just because I have notes written later. But for me, uh, the lack of a good B story, I think, is part of what makes it slow. We just keep going back to the ship and they're complaining about, you know, Spock and blah, blah, blah. And it just keeps happening and it keeps happening and it keeps happening, you know. And it isn't until Spock comes back that it changes.
1: I think they mistook the, the argument between McCoy and Spock for a B story.
0: Yes. Yes, I agree with that. And, well, I even have reasons why once we get there. Um, so I would have guessed that this episode was written by Gene Roddenberry with all the weird, like, sexual overtones that are happening in this. Uh, but surprisingly, the idea was created by a woman named Margaret Armand. Uh, she, with DC Fontana, was one of the few working females uh, female writers in TV. In the 60s, her agent had tried many times to get her on Trek, but she was rebuffed a few times, and it wasn't until the pickup into season two that uh, she sat down with Gene Roddenberry and uh, he uh, listened to her pitch and was all for it. Her pitch was called The Gamesters of Pentathlon. So I think that maybe they felt that was a little too close to the uh, the other one that they did, the Greek one that we just did. Who two for Adonis? Ago. Yes, who more is for Adonis? So that's probably why they didn't go with that. But uh, Cushman says this, the writer of uh, that great book, uh, These Are the Voyages, Season 2. It was originally planned as a science fiction story about a planet where people were used as gaming animals. When Star Trek aired, she rethought the concept, believing that it might be a good fit for this new television series. Star Trek seemed the perfect vehicle, she says. When I went to gene with it, the, the idea was very roughly developed. Since I had never written for Star Trek before... But Gene saw its potential and talked it through with me until it was tater- tailored for the Star Trek format. So on April 1st, 1967, Roddenberry wrote to Coon. Uh, Margaret came in and surprised me with a truly exciting premise. So she turns in her first story outline. DC Fontana uh, likes both her and the work that she's been uh, uh, doing But her main concern is the idea that the thralls are being used as breeding stock. She says the interfusion interval, while nicely presented, will probably flip out NBC's broadcast standards if they are clear enough and clever enough to realize what the interfusion interval is. Can we just avoid this rather obvious couch and uh, (laughs) Shanna laying down on it? So there was originally an idea with this interfusion interval where they were actually, there was legit breeding going on in this episode. As opposed to what we do get in this episode, which is like this weird moment where Ohura is taking off screen into her cell. And it very seems like something very uh, naughty and not good is happening in that cell uh, as we cut to commercial. And I'm even am- amazed that NBC didn't balk at that because even that is very suggestive in its telling. Always the producer, Robert Justman, had this to say, Let's be careful about the number of male and female thralls that we have screwing around and fighting and doing various things on this show. Humanoids are usually played by actors or extras, and they cost a lot of money to hire and to dress and to make up. That's plenty of dollars that we don't have, he says. He also wrote in the middle of that uh, memo, On page 17, we established the fact that these huge brains enjoy physical activities through their thralls, on an intellectual basis. Man, if thralls fighting thralls is an intellectual basis for enjoyment, then what would non-intellectual basis for enjoyment be? <laughs> if these providers are as intelligent as they claim to be, certainly then they could come up with other sorts of diversions. RJ, well,
1: what we have there is, is a kind of, like our standards of you know, what is highbrow versus lowbrow entertainment right so right. i think we have a sense that sports is lowbrow entertainment and you know perhaps poetry or a play or you know the arts or maybe even a mathematics lecture would be highbrow entertainment right and that's just a set of assumptions you know about modern western culture i don't think it would apply to the romans i don't think it's necessarily an obvious universal
0: During Outline 2, Armin revises her outline on May 5th. The outcome is very different than the filmed version as there is no conflict on the Enterprise between Spock and McCoy and Scott. These scenes on the ships are by a large uneventful. All three characters were in agreement concerning how to search for their captain and the two missing officers. So as bad as I think that B story is right now, I can't imagine how much worse that would have made it. Roddenberry knew the only way to get Armin into script was with NBC's Blessings. He therefore told Coon... Perhaps this is one of those cases in which the best answer is for our production office to revise the outline as we did with the case of Bixby. Roddenberry had been one, uh, had been the one to revise Jerome Bixby's story for mere Mirror Mirrored at NBC's liking. He felt it was now Gene Coon's turn to do this. Well, Gene was overwhelmed with other work and instead just sent the outline to Stan Robertson as it was. Contrary to Robert Justman's prediction, Stan Robertson was not thrilled with the effort. Robinson said that their... Uh, Robertson said there were too many similarities between the Gamesters of Triskelon and Breads and Circuses.
1: Oh.
0: Oh, there is. With both stories depicting the Enterprise people being forced into gladiatorial combat, he agreed to approve the story on one condition, that Kuhn would revise the outline himself and distance Gamesters and Circuses, which, of course, Gene Kuhn did, which is now a revised third draft of just the outline, by the way. <clears throat> Uh, obviously Bob Justman reads it and he says, uh, hey, why don't you and Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana write all our stories and scripts? It would make our lives so much easier. (laughs) Uh, Roddenberry also gave feedback to this as well. Surprisingly, it was he and not Kuhn who suggested adding humor to the story. Roddenberry told Kuhn, "Uh, we might also get some humor in this piece. For example, Sulu was assigned a, a hairy anthropod female creature might be assuming to follow Sulu's problems here as the rulers of the planet decide he is best mated with some particular biped animal. At this point, by the way, it was Sulu and not Chekhov. Uh, more on that coming. They originally also, too, had this idea at the beginning of the uh, the big three on the shuttlecraft instead of being going off on the transporter Robert Justman from the beginning was like, haven't we already done this a lot? I feel like we've done this a few times. Can we just do something else to get them across? Not to mention the money it would save by not having to do any shuttlecraft effects. So Margaret then writes draft one, and this time is DC with a, a bunch of notes, like uh, like 10 pages of notes, which all of which almost end up in the final draft of the script. She then writes draft two, Robert Justman is still losing his mind over the shuttlecraft opening and uh, also goes on to say this. We are now up to the big fight in Act 4. I do not deny the fact that this is quite an interesting idea, and it is liable to take six days to stage and shoot. How would you like to have Captain Kirk volunteer to be a solitary champion? (laughs) And he would be uh, opposed to a number of drill thralls, uh, and he would get to fight them one at a time. So if you think about it, when you have like episodes of Game of Thrones, for instance, their big night battle, which took them 55 nights to shoot, that's a crazy unheard number. But even still, you can see how Justman would be worried that any kind of fight sequence would take them too many days to shoot. So we get a revised second draft of the script, but DC loves it, but she thinks that it's over long. She also suggests that maybe it's Kirk who uh, maneuvers the, the providers into a wager. So that was her plan. Kuhn likes this idea as well. And of course, Armand is asked to do a uh, fourth draft. Gratis, of course. And then after all of this hard work is put into the script, they put it aside. It wasn't going to be included in the, uh, the first 16 episodes. So uh, by the time Gene Kuhn steps away from the office and they come to John Meredith Lucas, as we said last week, he wrote Obsession up first, and then his next uh, offering was to pick up Gamesters. Uh, Robert Justman wrote, for the most part, I think that Margaret Armin uh, has done a pretty good job on this polish. Pretty good meant Lucas only received four pages of critical notes from Robert Justman. Remarkably, after four drafts of a story outline, one by Kuhn, four drafts of the script, and the story structure and the dialogue of Gamesters of Pentathlon was still light years away from what we would eventually see on screen, despite all of these rewrites. Besides the colors of obedience not being uh, put into the story, many many other elements to be seen in the film version were still missing, including Galt's glowing eyes, his ability to pop in and out of scenes, Shauna's gray hair, Chekhov in place of Sulu, and the conflict of the enterprise between McCoy and Scott against Spock over the best course of action to take. At least a quarter of the story structure and more than half the dialogue in the script would still be changed. Now, the reason it had to be changed from Chekhov to, or from Sulu to Chekhov is because George Takai was trapped in his role in the Green Berets still. Takai says this. There is one particular script, the Gamesters of Triskolin, which I wanted to do very much. Berry had showed it to me before I took off for Columbus, Georgia. Well, then we ran into some rain and it delayed the shooting of the picture and they had to change the schedule. It was frustrating because I really wanted to come back and do that show. As it turned out, they rewrote it for Chekhov and uh, he got all of Mr. Sula's lines. Although I have to admit that despite my disappointment, I was pleased that Walter was the one able to do it. Thought that was nice. Cushman goes on to say this about the final draft. Lucas sat down and created a fourth revised final draft scaling back on some of the action called for on the planet where more actors and set sets were required. In its place, more scenes on the bridge with McCoy and Scott continued to badger, continuing to badger Spock over his decision to take the Enterprise in search of the missing crew members. The dialogue in these new scenes is redundant. Lucas had a tendency to dilute the spoken lines he'd write with too much unneeded chatter and too many repetitive beats, and that tendency is taken to the extremes in this episode. Which is funny, because we talked about that last episode as well. So the director of this episode, his name was Gene Nelson. He was contacted when the director originally hired to handle this episode dropped out at the last minute. Nelson, a former dancer and director of movies featuring complex dancing scenarios, was chosen because he could contribute to the choreography of the elaborate fight scenes, and he was available on short notice. He goes on. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. The regular cast did these shows before I came in, so their characters were all set. I thought, I can't change them. The only thing I can change is their reaction to something that they've never done on the show before. They would react in character, but differently than they had in any other situation. I had more freedom with the villains, he said. Uh, For the part of uh, Shahana, it was... Actually, it's Shauna, but it's spelled S-H-A-H-N-A, so it looks like Shahana or something. Anyway, uh, it was felt a dancer would be the best one to handle the demands of the fight scene. So this girl Angelina uh, Angelique Pettyjohn was cast for this role. She was only 24. She had worked as an exotic dancer and made her screen debut in the low-budget sexploitation film The Love Rebellion. One year prior to Star Trek, she appeared with Elvis Presley in Clambake. And at the time of this shooting, this episode, Pettyjohn had a record or, had a recurring role in Get Smart. A man disguised, yes, Uh, playing Charlie Wilkins, a man disguised as a buxom blonde.
1: You don't see uh, people making the transition from, like, Go Go Dancer or, like, adult cinema to, you know, like, mainstream television anymore. I know. It's funny. Uh,
0: Well, yeah, I guess that's true. I guess a lot of those people end up on like reality shows and stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, some famous, but yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, they, they can be celebrities. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. They're just not doing like weekly sitcoms.
1: Yeah, they're not ending up on on the equivalent of you know the show that's in competition with Gomer Pyle. <laughs> so uh,
0: she says that uh, she was reading the script before she went in and auditioned. And uh, she had read that he was supposed to, you know, be a blue-eyed Amazon with with green hair. And she's like, she goes into the office and says, I'm hardly an Amazon. I am only five foot six. They all laughed and they said, look, honey, next to Shatner, you'll look like an Amazon. Go ahead and read the script. (laughs) I was like, wow. She said that I found Shatner to be friendly, gregarious, and rather mischievous with a twinkling-eyed little smile. A really marvelous person to be on set. At first when I came in, I was very much in awe of working with him, but he made me feel instantly comfortable. I thought Leonard Nimoy was marvelous, intelligent, quiet, and very polite man, and I respected him very much. I loved Nichelle Nichols, and I thought she was just a doll. Walter Koenig was a really nice guy, very friendly, but also really quiet. I think he was on the shy side. Uh, just a couple quick more things before we get to the recap. Bart LaRue... Plays the voice of Provider One. He was also the voice of the Guardian of Forever, and was also the ringside announcer in Bread and Circuses. So we've heard his voice before. Also, also Provider Number Two was Walker Edmonston. Uh, he played Little Blaylock from the Carbomite Maneuver <laughs> yeah. and played the Keeper in the Menagerie. Lastly, Provider Three, which is the most interesting of them all. Uh, spoke for one of the Telogians during The Cage, but was also the voice of the self-destructing tape that gave Jim Phelps his assignment each week on Mission Impossible. So that's interesting. I love that one. Last but most important note. It was during this time that an inside source at NBC had leaked that Star Trek would not save its last-minute pickup for the balance of the season. Gamesters would end up being its last episode to film. Angelique Pettyjohn remembers three or four days after we started filming, John Meredith Lucas came in and during lunch and made the announcement to the cast and crew. He was very sorry to say the network had canceled the series. Everyone was very depressed. Uh, So there's lots of talk about at the time, you know, uh, everyone obviously being upset, but as soon as the cameras came on, everyone doing their job. And as soon as the cameras went off again, it was, you know, sulk time. But luckily within 48 hours of the rumors, Official word came from NBC. The network had reversed its decision and was placing an order for eight more episodes of Star Trek. Shander said, Yep, yeah, right, exactly." Shander said, "Obviously, the uh, the hearsay ultimately proved to be untrue, but for a two day period, we all thought we were uh, that Star Trek was a terminal case." And uh, that's it. That's all I got. So, you know what I like to say? Let's. I got lots more information, but we're going to do it in the recap. Let's get to it. log starting it's five year mission so this episode starts with a remastered shot of them going around the this uh moon with rings many craters in this moon the action starts quick as kirk uh, uhura and chekov go to beam down out uh, to a communication array that exists only on the planet uh only on the planet and then they are zapped across the galaxy to triskelon Tris- however nobody knows that yet Kirk immediately recognizes they are not a Gamma-2 because of the trinary sun that exists on this planet.
1: It'd be hard to miss.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, not a lot of information on uh, Memory Alpha about trinary stars, other than to say that both Archer and Solar have reported one in Enterprise. So that's interesting. Uh, Scott, of course, is instantly worried and tells Spock that they have vanished. Spock says... In a way, that means they haven't vanished in the usual type of working of the transporter. The group on the planet try their communicators uh, as they are quickly surrounded by a myriad of humanoids. Two women in go-go costumes and two men. They attempt to fire their phasers, but they don't work. Kirk orders (laughs) hand-to-hand. But uh, but Chekhov and Uhura are taken out pretty quickly. Kirk fights his guy and overpowering him. But then the green-haired, tinfoil-wearing Amazon steps in to make a half-hearted half-hearted takedown of him. Credits. Back at, back at it. From Flash Gordon, Ming appears, I mean Galt appears, <laughs> to welcome them. He immediately straps them against a wall and talks to them, then immediately unstraps them and walks them to their cells. I don't know what the point is strapping them in, but there you go. In that scene, we find out, we find out about the providers, we find, about, we find out about the thralls, and who they are and what the purpose is to this place. We are going to train you for the rest of your lives, dun-dun-dun, however short they may be, apparently. Back to the Enterprise, Spock and Scotty have scanned everything, including uh, uh, including the systems, and still have not found the missing three. Back down on the planet, Kirk and crew are shown to their cells, but they try to make an escape. Oh, no, but then the collars that have been placed around their necks stop them with painful measures. We notice, too, that in this one, and uh, the actor tried to do this on purpose, but it looks like Galt is, like, floating around in in his little, like, get-up there. I think that's fun. Back to the ship. They've scanned now. They're not even in the solar system. Bones is, still, uh, is assured that their atoms are still scattered somewhere out in space. Could they live for an hour as atoms in space? Spock says, I don't know, but that would be an interesting experiment.
1: Which just pisses Bones
0: off even more.
1: I wonder why.
0: <laughs> so Memory Alpha points out this, that... Uh, The answer to this question is ultimately realized by Montgomery Scott in the Next Generation episode, Relics, right? Scott successfully survives after being suspended in a transport for 75 years.
1: And the thing is, Spock is alive long enough to see it.
0: Yep, that's true, too.
1: So, I mean, you know, Mr. Scott could finally get to his retirement colony, just go, you know... Well, I wonder what happened to everyone. Oh my goodness, the database says Spock is still alive? (laughs) Right. I gotta drop him a word. Is he at the Vulcan Science? No, no, no. Is he at the... No, no, no. Vocation, Mr. Spock. Unknown.
0: (laughs) Is he dead? Is he not dead? What's happening here? Yeah,
1: what's going on? Then, of course, Mr. Spock may have been, uh, like, uh, you know, like, he has a Google alert for all of his friends, right? (laughs) Right. Anticipating time travel, not necessarily surviving in a transporter stream, but his Google alert says, hey, Montgomery Scott Scott, uh, rescued after uh, discovery of Dyson Sphere. (laughs) Fascinating. (laughs) Fascinating.
0: So, uh, back on the planet, Ahura's drill thrall arrives with refreshments. Then they go into the shadow for this weird, like, rapey scene or whatever that's happening here. Uh, but we have got Kirk at his most, like, melodramatic here, Shatner, right? Yelling, what's happening to Lieutenant Ahura? He screams between the bars. Commercial. I had a thought about this because you know we get a we get a different director for this episode. You know, usually we have one of the rotating three, but this time it's uh, this new guy Nelson. And wow. so maybe he. Di- so one of two things either happened. My guess is, is, a he doesn't know how to rein in, you know, Shatner to get a less like crazy melodramatic thing, or B, which is just that he wanted it. You know, he was like, right. rein, you know, uh, as somebody who comes from, you know, perhaps doing more theater or whatever you know maybe he wanted something bigger or a different expression from uh from shatner at that point back at it her has apparently uh, fended off whatever was happening in her cell but the drill thrall is unhappy about it and says he will go complain kirk's drill thrall then shows up and drops off his nourishment uh is this some kind of food what do you call this oh we just call that nourishment Okay, good lines. Back to the Enterprise, Spock's log, 3259.2. They find a fluctuating energy beam in a hydrogen cloud. Spock says, this is weird. We've got an ionized cloud that's going off of it. Let's, uh, let's follow it. Bone says, are you going off on some kind of wild goose chase? Spock says, Doctor, I am following the Captain Lieutenant Ahura and it's a checkoff, not some wild aquatic fowl.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs>
0: Uh, so the Enterprise leaves orbit of Gamma 2 and uh, starts following the ionized cloud at only Warp 2, by the way. Uh, we get then this funny scene here with Chekhov and the yellow alien girl who's, like, coming onto him so hard. There's also a boom shadow in the in the shot, if you look, right above Chekhov's head. Oops. Yep. And then it's funny, uh, she ends with her chin on his shoulder just, like, looking at him.
1: Thought that was really funny. Yeah, she's taking Chekhov. Yep, definitely. And she even suggested, like, they could be paired. You know, they could be yep. mated.
0: If you're lucky, Chekhov could be us. Although there could be worse out there. Who knows? Like, he could get stuck with some like female Klingon or something. That could be real trouble.
1: Yeah, that, that would be, especially uh, the, the modern Klingon, right? Yeah, I exactly. Could, I can just imagine poor Chekhov. You know, he's got he's still got to be, like, 19. <laughs> 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 what?
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, Kirk starts asking his drill thrall some questions. Uh, We find out about the red lights on Shahana's collar. uh, Scheherazade, whatever her name is. And uh, it's like, it means who owns them, basically. Uh, So this is when Kirk starts from, stops interrogating and turns on the seduction line, right? He gets this like plus five to every seduction he tries. Uh, Where were you born, he asks. Uh, She says, I don't understand, born. I've been here always. And then uh, he keeps asking her questions that uh, she's not allowed to talk about back aboard the enterprise Scotty and Bones continue to question Spock's command including the line by bones are you out of your bulk in mind
1: yep so you get you get some great dialogue that's right. well so this is where I I,
0: I put in my notes about uh, the B story right um I mean first of all we have to admit that in 1967. Not everybody has seen every episode of the show, right? Right, uh, right? The show is episodic, so sometimes it's going to repeat some themes, some ideas. So we've got that. But I'm just not sure that there's enough drama going on right now. There's a lot of, like, talking going on, uh, which is not to say I don't like it. Uh, you know, the discussions they're having, but I've already said what I felt about the B story, right? But to that point, then I asked myself, what's the alternative? Do we then go to something else attacking the ship? I mean, we've done that before. You know, also the problem is is that once the ship even gets to the planet, this is another problem with the B story, is like they don't even help wrap up the story, right? It's all Kirk, you know, being clever down there, talking to the brains and, you know, making the wager and everything. So I mean, we could have even. Well, uh, so I was thinking this: we could have literally even done without any of the stuff on the ship, or maybe just done two little scenes and inclu- included another B story with, uh, you know, Chekhov down here. Maybe he does have an actual, you know, love connection, or yeah.
1: you know, maybe
0: you know, maybe the way he's being, you know, ready to fight or something, you know, is something Chekhov's not ready for and doesn't want to do, and you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of like interesting things they could have done on the planet, right that they didn't though could have made an interesting b or even c story if you know you want to keep some of the stuff that's happening on the anyway those are just some ideas i threw out there about what they could have done for uh for another to help up the drama a little bit of what's happening in this because otherwise i'm bored back on the planet a thrall who caused a problem is being punished uh so uh, of course her and the rest of the federation crew are like no that's not cool don't do, don't i don't they, uh, I don't want to be a part of this. So uh, they're like, okay, then you're going to be the one who's punished. Which, of course, then Kirk steps up, you know, saying that, uh, no, no, I'm going to take responsibility for the actions of my crew because he's Kirk. So he is then uh, the one who's sentenced to, you know, take on the fighting as we go to commercial. When we come back, Kirk's ship, or shirt is all ripped He's been whipped by this tall guy with the snarling teeth. Kirk then gives, you know, the perfect Kirk kick into the chest of this guy. And then he does it again. Oh, but then we get a quick rest. Which is weird in the middle of this fight. 15 neuroseconds or something. Anyway, uh, we get more nourishment from uh, Shanara, And then uh, some advice to hit him from the left because his eye is not good there on that side. So then uh, Kirk somehow manages to loosen the rope that binds his hands, and he ends up uh, strangling out the big guy. And there's a lot of time spent on this fight, which is only so, so choreographed. Anyway, the providers step in, and uh, they start bidding on Kirk, right? He's to, who's going to buy him, blah, blah, blah. He's to be vended to uh, Provider One. Kirk, of course, hates all of this. You know, this is slavery, he says. Back on the ship, we're repeating ourselves in some more scenes between Spock and Bones. Back on Trisklin, Uh Sharona and Kirk are on the run. Uh, they stop so Kirk can rest. She says, all right, if you're tired. He then quizzes her some more uh, about the providers. But again, she doesn't have enough answers. Do they have bodies? She doesn't even know. So, of course, he tries this different tack and tries to be nice to her. This is at least interesting, right? Because no one's been nice to her before. She doesn't know how to handle it. Uh, He then shows her love. This is what love is like on Earth. We select our own mate. Men and women help each other, and they're about to kiss. And then she says, "No, no, no! I don't think your words are allowed." And then, uh, but she's like, but I think I do know some of the answers to your questions. But just as she does, oh no, the collar of obedience has stepped in again. Kirk screams to the heavens as only Shatner can Stop it, stop it. <laughs> it was my fault. Commercial. Back at it. Kirk continues to shout, Stop it, stop it. Although it's funny, when they come back from the commercial, he's a little more like controlled and cool. He even says please to these people. Is this compassion? Provider one asks. There is no room for that here. Uh, But of course, Shanae here has never seen compassion before, and asks him about bringing the wrath on himself. He says, "Of course, we do that. People on my planet, we help each other." And then they kiss. And then she asks, "Helping?" Exactly. And he's like, well, you could call it that. And she's like, help me some more. Ah, somebody's thirsty. Back to the ship. Spock asks if Scott can make us go faster than warp six. I thought they were only going warp two, but now they're going warp six. Scott says, no, I think we've come too far already. I don't know why he's Irish. Anyway. uh, (laughs) Bone says, I think so too. Uh, Why why are we going this based on a hunch? And he says, uh, no, this is a methodical thought process based on evidence.
1: Sounds like a hunch
0: to me, says Bones. Spock uh, cuts off all their future complaining by asking them if they intended to mutiny against him. Both of them, of course, back down, and Scott says,
1: all
0: right, all right, Mr. Spock. I'll give you a warp seven and maybe a little bit more. Back on Triskolin. Kirk sees that uh, Sharon here is, distru- is disturbed by the day's events. And so she tries to leave right away after dropping the nourishment. He grabs her by the arm and asks her that. She says, I'm going to ask to be remilled- removed as your drill thrall. And then he kisses her. And then he knocks her out. <laughs> Boom. Oh Well, that's one, day- one way to subdue somebody. And apparently, all the others on the crew have done the same. Their plan? Find phasers to try and short out their collars. They make their way across the battle floor, only to be stopped by Galt. He issues pain to their collars of obedience. Spock, now having arrived on Triskolin, takes the ops position and scans the planet. However, he can find no power source where the humanoids are. Spock decides he will beam down with bones but they are stopped by the providers who will find that none of your equipment works. So now somehow Kirk and Spock can talk to each other and the providers all at the same time. They've opened up communications. Kirk tries to give uh, the crew the lay of the land. Well, here you are. You're on Triscoll Uh These are uh, providers. They're bad people. I was wondering, too, if there was another way, as opposed to just making this gladiatorial where they have to physically fight each other, if maybe there was another way to... To interest these, these uh, like Robert Justman was saying, to interest these, you know, what, what if it was some kind of like Big Brother show, right? Like, which of these people can become friends? And which of these are the scheming people that, you know, who are going to throw other people under the bus? And you know what I mean? It could be that kind of thing as opposed to gladiatorial. Again, I just feel like we did it in Bread bread and Circuses, but here right we are again.
1: Well, yeah, so it's a it's a Bread and Circuses cage hybrid kind of, mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And uh I think it's funny something you were alluding to there. I could I could totally imagine this being done like in the in the first decade of the twenty first century in which instead of a gladiatorial combat, they would be on a reality show. Right? Mm-hmm. I could totally see that like, well this is the future of television from now forever. Everyone's gonna love reality shows. <laughs>
0: Well, they actually did that on Doctor Who uh, season one, actually. So it would have been about 2005. Anyway, Kirk tricks oh, uh, so anyway, Kirk uh, tricks the uh, the Brainiacs into showing themselves. There we get down there. There are three brains in a glass case. So now it's kind of like errand of mercy a little bit, right? It's been flip flopped. So there are higher ber- higher beings. It's also worth pointing out here that the top. Of the dome that they the, the clear dome that they put the brains in was the top of Lazarus's ship from the alternative factor. So oh. that's kind of funny, yeah. Kirk tries to make the argument that all life forms can turn into higher beings. Interesting, says the providers. But I'm sorry, uh, we can't believe you. Or we're going to have to destroy you. To which then Kirk flips out again and says, "You call yourself superior? You're just murderers without spirit. I'll wager for the lives you take." <gasps> And then he realizes, oh, this could be the way to do it. (laughs) Ha ha, this is the trick. I'll make a bet they won't refuse. So he wagers that with the weapons of their choice, that my people can overcome overcome the same number of thralls that you've uh, created. The stakes, if Kirk wins, the crew goes free and the thralls are left to be educated by the providers. We've done it in cultures over the centuries. Are you willing to admit that we can do something that you can't do? Ooh. They're like, no, we can do anything you can do. Of course. We came up with a sequel idea, by the way, for this episode. So say the next generation crew or somebody in this era uh, comes back to the planet and uh, it, it turns out that they've gotten bored with democracy <laughs> and they've <laughs> to see what happened if like, what if we withhold food from these group of people or, you know, uh, what if we take <laughs> away these people's shelter or something, you know, I don't know, it's more of like becomes an experiment on what the thralls will do as opposed right. to like, teaching them democracy.
1: Which would just be another version of the It's a Reality Show.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. If Kirk loses, he will stay behind. And they're like, okay, but we're going to change, uh, we're going to change the thing. We're just going to have you, since you seem to be the most competent of your group, uh, and you're going to fight three of the falls themselves, Uh, three of the thralls himself. That's hard to say, three of the thralls himself. But now the stakes are raised even further, as we learn that on the board, if you step onto the opposing team's color, you will lose a weapon. Which Kirk does on at least three occasions, just to point it out. The director Nelson says this, defending the sloppiness. You get to the point where you have to build to an ending, and it's just no holds barred kind of thing, right? So setting that up, that, setting it up that way with the colored sections made it interesting. But after a while, you just got to say screw it. I've got to finish this up because on that one set, they actually spent two and a half days filming on that one set. Now, of course, that's everything that they had to film on that. But still, that's a long time to be standing on one set. So Kirk fights. It's a long fight, blah, blah, blah. Kirk takes out all three members, but the third Andorian, he only knocks out. So then Shauna, that's actually her name, Shauna, is forced to step in. What will Kirk do? Will he kill the girl? You lied, she says. Oh boy, there's nothing more upset than a woman spawned, right? Kirk gets the knife to her throat, but he can't do it. So then she knocks it away, and he finally gets her locked again. Knife to her throat, and she surrenders? I thought the stakes were that somebody was supposed to die? But the providers say, nope, you're right, you win, okay. We'll uh, we'll teach these thralls uh, about, you know, becoming good people and democracy and all sorts of things. She wants to go with him, but he says, no, you've got much you must learn. She says, okay, I will learn these things. Goodbye, Jim Kirk. I will learn and watch the lights in the sky, and remember. She has <laughs> this to say about this speech: When I said goodbye, Jim Kirk, I had tears in my eyes, and those tears were real because I was thinking that it was actually the goodbye to Star Trek. I really c- cried, and that's how I meant it because I thought the series was uh, wasn't going to be shooting anymore. She said. So see, that's good. It all worked out behind. And uh, you know, that's that. Not a lot to talk about here, right? Slavery bad. Humans can't be contained. Democracy good, I guess. <laughs> I think we hit it all. <laughs> uh, Star Trek was in its usual second place position during the first half hour of the episode, but then rose to claim the number one spot at 9 pm the night
1: Gober pile. Yeah,
0: it remained NBC's highest rated Friday night show. Oh, it was still lost to Gomer Pile. That's why I lost in the first half hour, duh. But it was going up against the music man. They're actually showing the music man, so. Alright, Gene Nelson, the director, said they desperately try uh they desperately hard.
1: Basis for Andorians. That is for the Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard about the tradesman Kirk? <laughs> Kirk never heard of any Kirk.
0: <laughs> and somehow it got fused together, the two. <laughs>
1: yes. Well, it only makes sense.
0: So the director Gene Nelson said this they tried desperately hard to shoot a sci fi show in the same amount of time that you shoot an action adventure everybody's on edge because of the pressure you had to make many sacrifices i had many exciting things i was planning to do but you find that uh, you can't do it and you must find another way to get the idea across so for instance there's the scene with chekhov and 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 his little like lady who's trying to woo him uh they only had one setup for that they couldn't do all the close-ups so it was koenig's idea to like turn towards the camera and not look at her to make everything seem a little more awkward but that also helped with them getting uh, both their faces in the shot at the same time. So clever on his part. William Shatner names the Gamesters of Triskelin as one of his favorite episodes produced by John Meredith Lucas. He regarded it as exciting, action-passed, and fun to shoot, which then really makes me worried about going into the John Meredith Lucas era. <laughs> it's funny, I'll also say this, since we're at the uh, end of the episode and also at the end of the uh continuing to be at the end of the gene coon reign and that's that uh you know i've been listening to us you know and editing and all these kinds of things and you know we talk about gene coon a lot and about what he really brought to star trek and so it is really hard knowing that we're getting you know truly to the end of the gene Kuhn era you know that his fingerprints aren't even going to be on some things anymore uh so it's really sad to see that guy go we've talked about it before but you know he brought some of the most important Ideas yeah. to Star Trek, and so it's you know you see him leave, and you're just like, Meh, sad times. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, uh, as I said, that's all the notes that I possibly had on this episode. Anything else that you would like to talk about, sir?
1: I am going to hint slightly into the future. Um, so I feel like we have turned a bit of a corner, as you've been suggesting, right? All right. And you, I, I read the the trekmovies.com review for the next episode, which, you know, we're in a space amoeba kind of a thing, right? Yes. And they're like, you know, it's the same thing. We've seen this. It's just another. There's, there's some good dialogue, right? So the writing ha- is improving. Some of the writing in the early episodes, there's a little, you know, early episode weirdness, right? Yeah. Uh, Roddenberry doing a lot of the early episode writing. And uh, probably not the greatest dialogue guy in Star Trek. <laughs> also true. And, you know, so they're like, well, you, know, you have some interesting bits of dialogue. In the same way that here we had some interesting dynamic stuff between uh, Scott, McCoy, and Spock. And including some, some great lines, like, are you out of your... Vulcan Minds. You're in mind and uh but it's another mindless you know alien kind of a problem right right whereas the, the, the interesting the cool stuff is when you figure out whether it's a giant space whale that wants to have a baby from next generation or whether it's the hoarder from devil in the dark oh wait a minute you have motives and those motives make sense and now, that, now we can come to some kind of accommodation. Uh-huh. Rather than the, it's a mindless giant planet-killing amoeba. Right. Silver maw, you know, whatever.
0: Cloud of smoke. Yeah. All right, well, as always, we'll get into all of that. Hopefully uh, we'll be able to come up with much more interesting things to talk about than we did this episode.
1: There is still a lot of good bits to come, right? Yes. I just don't feel we're going to have quite as many amazing episodes. Right. But where the whole... There's Amok Time, City on the Edge of Forever, um, Balance of Terror, Balance of Terror, Devil in the Dark. You know, these are kind of like, oh my god, it's amazing. Yeah. Right? And you... It changes science fiction, and science fiction isn't the same because of these kinds of episodes. And... I just don't, you know, there's not a whole lot of those left. Although, there's really good bits. We're going to have the Enterprise incident. More Romulans. Right. Good stuff.
0: All right. Well, we hope you'll all tune in soon for all of those great stuff. As always, my name's Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming to us from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken.
1: Peace and long life. There you go,
0: and we will see you all next week.